support Black Clock Audio Tales by going to the Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. This month, the month of May, we are doing uh, the space operas Skylark of Space and Skylark 3 by E.E. Smith. Thank you again for listening. And for Radio Free Oleander, we'll be talking about Star Wars, or the Star Wars trilogy, or the Star Wars series, or Star Wars as a phenomena this May. Check out our show notes for where to find us, where to subscribe, where to find out, where to find us on social media, where to suggest stuff, where to say, hey, I was listening to Dracula, and there's a page missing that happened, and I fixed it. Black Clock Audio Tales, the month of May. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Peace Conference. Here's a chart of the green system, Mart, with all the motions and the rest of the dope that they've been able to get. How'd it be for you to navigate us over to the third planet of the fourteenth sun? While you build a fenachrone super generator? Right the first time, your deducer is sitting on all eight as usual. That big ray is hot stuff. And their ray screen is something to write home about, too. How can their rays be any hotter than ours, Dick? Dorothy asked curiously. I thought you said we had the very last word in rays. I thought we had, but those birds we met back there spoke a couple of later words. Their rays work on an entirely different system than the one we use. They generate an extremely short carrier wave like the Millikan Cosmic Ray, by recombining some of the electrons and protons of their disintegrating metal, and upon this wave they impose a pure heat frequency of terrific power. The Millikan Rays will penetrate anything except a special ray screen, or a zone of force, and carry with them, somewhat as radio frequencies carry sound frequencies, the heat rays which volatilize anything they touch. Their ray screens are a lot better than ours, too. They generate the entire spectrum. It's a sweet system, and when we revamp ours so as to be just like it, we'll be able to talk turkey to those folks on the third planet. How long will it take you to build it? asked Crane, who, dexterously turning the pages of Vega's handbook, was calculating their course. A day or so, maybe less. I've got all the stuff and with my osnomian tools, it won't take long. If you find you'll get there before I get done, you'll have to loaf a while, kill a little time. Are you going to connect the power plant to operate on the entire vessel and all its contents? No, can't do it without redesigning the whole thing, and that's hardly worthwhile for the short time we'll use this old bus. Building those generators would have been a long and difficult task for a corps of earthly mechanics and electricians, but to Seaton it was merely a job. The shop had been enlarged and had been filled to capacity with osnomian machinery, machine tools that were capable of performing automatically and with the utmost precision and speed any conceivable mechanical operation. 
he put a dozen of them to work, and before the vessel reached its destination, the new offensive and defensive weapons had been installed and thoroughly tested. He had added a third screen generator, so that now, in addition to the four-foot hull of Arnak and the repellers warding off any material projectile, the Skylark was also protected by an outer, an intermediate, and an inner ray screen, each driven by the superpower of a 400-pound bar, and each covering the entire spectrum, capable of neutralizing any dangerous frequency known to those master scientists, the Fenachrone. As the Skylark approached the planet, Seaton swung number six visiplate upon it and directed their flight toward a great army base. Darting down upon it, he snatched an officer into the airlock, closed the door, and leaped back into space. He brought the captive into the control room, pinioned by auxiliary attractors, and relieved him of his weapons. He then rapidly read his mind, encountering no noticeable resistance, released the attractors, and addressed him in his own language. "'Please be seated, Lieutenant,' Seaton said courteously, motioning him to one of the seats. "'We come in peace. Please pardon my discourtesy in handling you, but it was necessary in order to learn your language, and thus to get in touch with your commanding officer.' The officer, overcome with astonishment that he had not been killed instantly, sank into the seat indicated without a reply, and Seaton went on. "'Please be kind enough to signal your commanding officer that we are coming down at once for a peace conference. By the way, I can read your signals, and will send them myself if necessary.' The stranger worked an instrument attached to his harness briefly, and the Skylark descended slowly toward the fortress. "'I know, of course, that your vessels will attack,' Seaton remarked, as he noted a crafty gleam in the eyes of the officer. I intend to let them use all their power for a time to prove to them the impotence of their weapons. After that, I shall tell you what to say to them. Do you think this is altogether safe, Dick? asked Crane, as they saw a fleet of gigantic airships soaring upward to meet them. Nothing's sure but death and taxes, returned Seaton cheerfully. But don't forget that we've got fenachrome armament now instead of Osnomian. I'm betting that they can't begin to drive their rays through even our outer screen. And even if our outer screen should begin to go into the violet, I don't think it will ever go cherry red, out goes our zone of force, and we automatically go up where no possible airship can reach. Since their only spaceships are rocket-driven and of practically no maneuverability, they stand a big chance of getting to us. Anyway, we must get in touch with them to find out if they know anything we don't, and this is the only way I know of to do it. Besides, I want to head Dunark off from wrecking this world. They're exactly the same kind of folks he is, you notice, and I don't like civil war. Any suggestions? Keep an eye on that bird, then, Mart, and we'll go down. The Skylark dropped down into the midst of the fleet, which instantly turned against her the full force of their giant guns and their immense ray batteries. Seaton held the Skylark motionless, staring into his visiplate, his right hand grasping the zone switch. 
The outer screen isn't even getting warm, he exulted after a moment. The repellers were hurling the shells back long before they reached even the outer screen, and they were exploding harmlessly in the air. The full power of the ray generators, too, which had been so destructive to the Osnonium defenses, were only sufficient to bring the outer screen to a dull red glow. After fifteen minutes of passive acceptance of all the airships could do, Seaton spoke to the captive. "'Sir, please signal the commanding officer of Vessel 724 that I am going to cut it in two in the middle. Have him remove all the men in that part of the ship to the ends, and have parachutes in readiness, as I do not wish to cause any loss of life.' The signal was sent, and as the officer was already daunted by the fact that their utmost efforts could not even make the stranger's screen radiate, it was obeyed. Seaton then threw on the frightful power of the Fenachrone super-generators. The defensive screens of the doomed warship flashed once, a sparkling, corsicating display of incandescent brilliance, and, in the same instant, went down. Simultaneously, the entire midsection of the vessel exploded into light and disappeared, completely volatized. Sir, please signal the entire fleet to cease action and to follow me down. If they do not do so, I will destroy the rest of them. The Skylark dropped to the ground, followed by the fleet of warships, who settled in a ring about her, inactive but ready. Will you please loan me your sending instrument, sir? Seaton asked. From this point on, I can carry on negotiations better, direct, rather than through you. The lieutenant found his voice as he surrendered the instrument. Sir, are you the overlord of Osnome, of whom we have heard? We had supposed that one was a mythical character, but you must be he. No one else would spare lives that he could take and the overlord is the only being reputed to have a skin the color of yours. Yes, lieutenant, I am the overlord, and I have decided to become the overlord of the entire green system, as well as Osnome. He then sent out a call to the commander-in-chief of all the armies of the planet, informing him that he was coming to visit him at once, and the Skylark tore through the air to the capital city. No sooner had the earthly vessel alighted upon the palace grounds than she was surrounded by a ring of warships who, however, made no offensive move. Seaton again used the telegraph. Commander-in-chief of the armed forces of the planet Irvania, greetings from the overlord of this solar system. I invite you to come into my vessel, unarmed and alone, for a conference. I come in peace and, peace or war, as you decide, no harm shall come to you until after you have returned to your own command. Think well before you reply. If I refuse, I shall destroy one of the vessels surrounding me, and shall continue to destroy them one every ten seconds until you agree to come. If you still do not agree, I shall destroy all the armed forces upon this planet." Then destroy all your people who are at present upon Osnome. I wish to avoid bloodshed and destruction, but I can and I will do as I have said. I will come. 
the general came out upon the field unarmed, escorted by a company of soldiers. A hundred feet from the vessel he halted the guards, and came on alone, erect and soldierly. Seaton met him at the door, and invited him to be seated. "'What can you have to say to me?' the general demanded, disregarding the invitation. "'Many things. First, let me say that you are not only a brave man, you are a wise general. Your visit to me proves it. It is a sign of weakness, but I believed when I heard those reports, and still believe, that a refusal would have resulted in heavy loss of our men, was the general's reply. It would have, said Seaton. I repeat that your act was not weakness, but wisdom. The second thing I have to say is that I had not planned on taking any active part in the management of things, either upon Osnome or upon this planet, until I learned of a catastrophe that is threatening all the civilization in this galaxy, thus threatening my own distant world as well as those of this solar system. Third, only by superior force can I make either your race or the Osnomians listen to reason sufficiently to unite against a common foe. You have been reared in unreasoning hatred for so many generations that your minds are warped. For that reason, I have assumed control of this entire system, and shall give you your choice between cooperating with us or being rendered incapable of molesting us while our attention is occupied by this threatened invasion. We will have no traffic with the enemy whatever, said the general. This is final. You just think so. Here is a mathematical statement of what is going to happen to your world unless I intervene. He handed the general a drawing of Dunark's plan and described it in detail. This is the answer of the Osnomians to your invasion of their planet. I do not want this world destroyed, but if you refuse to make common cause with us against a common foe, it may be necessary. Have you forces at your command sufficient to frustrate this plan? No, but I cannot really believe that such a deflection of celestial bodies is possible. Possible or not, you realize that I could not yield to empty threats. Of course not, said Seaton, but you are wise enough to refuse to sacrifice a few ships and men in a useless struggle against my overwhelming armament. Therefore, you are certainly wise enough to refuse to sacrifice your entire race. However, before you come to any definite conclusion, I will show you what threatens the galaxy. He handed the other a headset and ran through the section of the record showing the plans of the invaders. He then ran a few sections showing the irresistible power at the command of the Fenachrone. This is what awaits us all unless we combine against them. What are your requirements? the general asked. I request immediate withdrawal of all your armed forces now upon Osnome, and full cooperation with me in this coming war against the invaders. In return, I will give you the secrets I have just given the Osnomians, the power and the offensive and defensive weapons of this vessel. The Osnomians are now building vessels such as this one, asked the general. They are building vessels a hundred times the size of this one, with the same armament. For myself, 
I would agree to your terms. However, the word of the Emperor is law. I understand, replied Seaton. Would you be willing to seek an immediate audience with him? I would suggest that both you and he accompany me, and we shall hold a peace conference with the Osnomian Emperor and Commander-in-Chief upon this vessel. We shall be gone less than a day. I shall do so at once. You may accompany your general, Lieutenant. Again, I ask pardon for my necessary rudeness. As the Urvanian officers hurried toward the palace, the other terrestrials, who had been listening in from another room, entered. It sounded as though you convinced him, Dick, but that language is nothing like Condalean. Why don't you teach it to us? Teach it to Shiro, too, so we can cook and talk to our distinguished guests intelligently, if they're going back with us. As he connected up the educator, Seaton explained what had happened and concluded. I want to stop this civil war, keep Dunark from destroying this planet, preserve Osnome for the Osnomians, and make them all cooperate with us against the Fenachrone. That's one tall order, since these folks haven't the remotest notion of anything except killing. A company of soldiers approached, and Dorothy got up hastily. Stick around, folks. We can all talk to them. I believe that it would be better for you to be alone, Crane decided, after a moment's thought. They are used to autocratic power and can understand nothing but one-man control. The girls and I will keep out of it. That might be better at that, and Seaton went to the door to welcome the guests. Seaton instructed them to lie flat and put on all the acceleration they could bear. It was not long until they were back in Condal, where Roban, the Carfidix, and Tarnan, the Carbix, accepted Seaton's invitation and entered the Skylark unarmed. Back out in space, the vessel stationary, Seaton introduced the emperors and commanders-in-chief to each other, introductions which were acknowledged almost imperceptibly. He then gave each a headset and ran the complete record of the fenachrome brain. Stop, shouted Roban, after only a moment. Would you, the overlord of Osnome, reveal such secrets as this to the arch-enemies of Osnome? I would. I have taken over the overlordship of the entire green system for the duration of this emergency, and I do not want two of its planets engaged in a civil war. The record finished. Seaton tried for some time to bring the four green warriors to his way of thinking, but in vain. Roban and Tarnan remained contemptuous. They would have thrown themselves upon him, but for the knowledge that no fifty unarmed men of the green race could have overcome his strength, to them supernatural. The two Urvanians were equally obdurate. This soft earth being had given them everything. They had given him nothing and would give him nothing. Finally, Seaton rose to his full height and stared at them in turn, wrath and determination blazing in his eyes. I have brought you four together here in a neutral vessel in neutral space to bring about peace between you. I have shown you the benefits to be derived from the peaceful pursuit of science, knowledge, and power, instead of continuing this utter economic waste of continual war. 
you all close your senses to reason. You of Osnome accuse me of being an ingrate and a traitor, and you of Irvania consider me a soft-headed, sentimental weakling, who may safely be disregarded, all because I think the welfare of the numberless people of the universe more important than your narrow-minded, stubborn, selfish vanity. Think what you please. If brute force is your only logic, know now that I can and will use brute force. Here are the seven discs, and he placed the bracelet upon Roban's knee. If you four leaders are short-sighted enough to place your petty enmity before the good of all civilization, I am done with you forever. I have deliberately given Irvanians precisely the same information that I have given the Osnomians, no more, no less. I have given neither of you all that I know, and I shall know much more than I do now before the time of the conquest shall have arrived. Unless you four men here and now renounce this war and agree to a perpetual peace between your worlds, I shall leave you to your mutual destruction. You do not yet realize the power of the weapons I have given you. When you do realize it, you will know that mutual destruction is inevitable if you continue this internecine war. I shall continue upon other worlds my search for the one secret standing between me and a complete mastery of power. That I shall find that secret, I am confident, and having found it, I shall, without your aid, destroy the Fenachrone. You have several times remarked with sneers that you are not to be swayed by empty threats. What I am about to say is no empty threat. It is a most solemn promise, given by one who has both the will and the power to fulfill his every given word. Now listen carefully to this, my final utterance. If you continue this warfare, and if the victor should not be utterly destroyed in its course, I swear as I stand here by the first great cause that I shall myself wipe out every trace of the surviving nation as soon as the Fenachrone shall have been obliterated. Work with each other and me, and we all may live. Fight on, and both your nations to the last person will most certainly die. Decide now which it is to be. I have spoken. Roban took up the bracelet and clasped it again about Seton's arm, saying, You are more than ever our overlord. You are wiser than are we, and stronger. Issue your commands, and they shall be obeyed. Why did you not say those things first, overlord? asked the Irvanian emperor, as he saluted and smiled. We could not in honor submit to a weakling, no matter what the fate in store. Having convinced us of your strength, there can be no disgrace in fighting beneath your screens. An armlet of seven symbols shall be cast and ready for you when you next visit us. Roban Vosmon, you are my brother. The two emperors saluted each other and stared eye to eye for a long moment, and Seton knew that the perpetual peace had been signed. Then all four spoke in unison. Overlord, we await your commands. Dunark of Osnome is already informed as to what Osmone is to do. 
say to him that it will not be necessary for him to build the vessel for me. The Irvanians will do that. Irvan of Irvania, you will accompany Roban to Osnome, where you two will order instant cessation of hostilities. Osnome has many ships of this type, and upon some of them you will return your every soldier and engine of war to your own planet. As soon as possible, you will build for me a vessel like that of the Fenachrone, except that it shall be ten times as large in every dimension, and except that every instrument, control, and weapon is to be left out. Left out? It shall be so built, but of what use will it be? The empty spaces shall be filled after I have returned from my quest. You will build this vessel of Dagal. You will also instruct the Osnomian commander in the manufacture of that metal, which is so much more resistant than their Arnak. But, overlord, we have. I have just brought immense stores of the precious chemical and of the metal of power to Osnome. They will share it with you. I also advise you to build for yourselves many ships like those of the Fenachrone, with which to do battle with the invaders, in case I should fail in my quest. You will, of course, see to it that there will be a corps of your most efficient mechanics and artisans within call at all times, in case I should return and have sudden need for them. All these things shall be done. The conference ended. The four nobles were quickly landed upon Osnome, and once more the Skylark traveled out into her element, the total vacuum and absolute zero of the outer void, with Crane at the controls. You certainly sounded savage, Dick. I almost thought you really meant it, Dorothy chuckled. I did mean it, Dot. Those fellows are mighty keen on detecting bluffs. If I hadn't meant it, and they hadn't known that I meant it, I'd never have got away with it. But you couldn't have meant it, Dick. You wouldn't have destroyed the Osnomians, surely. You know you wouldn't. No, but I would have destroyed what was left of the Arvanians. And all five of us knew exactly how it would have turned out, and exactly what I would have done about it. That's why they all pulled in their horns. I don't know what would have happened, interjected Margaret. What would have? With this new stuff, the Irvanians would have wiped the Osnomians out. They are an older race, and so much better in science and mechanics, that the Osnomians wouldn't have stood much chance, and knew it. Incidentally, that's why I'm having them build our new ship. They'll put a lot of stuff into it that Dunark's men would miss. Maybe some stuff that even the Fenachrone haven't got. However, though it might seem that the Irvanians had all the best of it, Irvan knew that I had something up my sleeve beside my bare arm, and he knew that I'd clean up what there was left of his race if they polished off the Osnomians. What a frightful chance you were taking, Dick, gasped Dorothy. You have to be hard to handle those folks, and believe me, I was a forty-minute egg right then. They have such a peculiar mental and moral slant that we can hardly understand them at all. The idea of cooperation is so new to him that it actually dazed all four of them, even to consider it. Do you suppose they will fight anyway? asked Crane. Absolutely not. Both nations 
have an inflexible code of honor, such as it is, and lying is against both codes. That's one thing I like about them. I'm sort of honest myself, and with either of these races, you'd need nothing signed or guaranteed. What next, Dick? Now the real trouble begins, Mart. Oil up the massive old intellect. Have you found the answer to the problem? What problem? asked Dorothy. You didn't tell us anything about a problem. No, I told Mart. I want the best physicist in this entire solar system, and since there are only 125 planets around these 17 suns, it should be simple to yawn phenomenal brain. In fact, I expect to hear him say, Elementary, my dear Watson, elementary. Hardly that, Dick, but I have found out a few things. There are some eighty planets which are probably habitable for beings like us. Other things being equal, it seems reasonable to assume that the older the sun, the longer its planets have been habitable, and therefore the older and more intelligent the life. Ha ha, it was elementary, says Sherlock. Seaton interrupted. You're heading directly at the largest, oldest, and most intelligent planet, then, I take it, where I can catch me my physicist. Not directly at it, no. I am heading for the place where it will be when we reach it. That is elementary. Ouch, that got me, Mart, right where I live. I'll be good. But you are getting ahead of me, Dick. It's not as simple as you have assumed from what I have said so far. The Osnomian astronomers have done wonders in the short time they have had, but their data, particularly on the planets of the outer suns, is as yet necessarily very incomplete. Since the furthermost outer sun is probably the oldest, it is the one in which we are most interested. It has seven planets, four of which are probably habitable, as far as temperature and atmosphere are concerned. However, nothing exact is yet known of their masses, motions, or places. Therefore, I have laid our course to intercept the closest one to us, as nearly as I can, from what meager data we have. If it should prove to be inhabited by intelligent beings, they can probably give us more exact information concerning their neighboring planets. That is the best I can do. That's a darn fine best, old top narrowing down to four from a hundred and twenty-five. Well, until we get there, what to do? Let's sing us a song, to keep our fearless quartet in good voice. Before you do anything, said Margaret seriously, I would like to know if you really think there is a chance of defeating those monsters. In all seriousness, I do. In fact, I am quite confident of it. If we had two years... I know we could lick them cold, and by stepping on the gas, I believe we can get the dope in less than the six months we have to work in. I know that you are serious, Dick. Now you know that I do not want to discourage anyone, but I can see small bases for optimism. Crane spoke slowly and thoughtfully. I hope you will be able to control the zone of force, but you are not studying it yourself. You seem to be certain that somewhere in this system there is a race who already knows all about it. I would like to know your reasons for thinking that such a race exists. 
They may not be upon this system. They may have been outsiders, as we are. But I have reason for believing them to be natives of this system, since they were green. You are as familiar with Osnomian mythology as I am. You girls in particular have read Osnomian legends to Osnomian children for hours. Also, identically, the same legends prevailed upon Urvania. I read them in that lieutenant's brain. In fact, I looked for them. You also know that every folk legend has some basis, however tenuous in fact. Now, Dottie, tell about the Battle of the Gods, when Osnome was a pup. The gods came down from the sky, Dorothy recited. They were green, as were men. They wore invisible armor of polished metal, which appeared and disappeared. They stayed inside the armor and fought outside it with swords and lances of fire. Men who fought against them cut them through and through with swords, and they stuck the men with lances of flame so that they were stunned. So the gods fought in days long gone and vanished in their invisible armor. And... That's enough, interrupted Seaton. The little red-haired girl has her lesson perfectly. Get it, Mart? No, I cannot say that I do. Why, it doesn't even make sense, exclaimed Margaret. All right, I'll elucidate. Listen. And Seaton's voice grew tense with earnestness. Visitors came down out of space. They were green. They wore zone of force, which they flashed on and off. They stayed inside the zones and projected their images outside and used rays through the zones. Men who fought against the images cut them through and through with swords, but could not harm them since they were not actual substance. And the images directed rays against the men so that they were stunned. So the visitors fought in days long gone and vanished in their zones of force. How does that sound? You have the most stupendous imagination the world has ever seen. But there may be some slight basis of fact there, after all, said Crane, slowly. I'm convinced of it, for one reason in particular. Notice that it says specifically that the visitors stunned the natives. Now that thought is absolutely foreign to all Osnomian nature. When they strike, they kill, and always have. Now, if that myth has come down through so many generations without having that stunned changed to killed, I'm willing to bet a few weeks of time that the rest of it came down fairly straight, too. Of course, what they had may not have been the zone of force as we know it, but it must have been a ray of some kind, and believe me, that was one educated ray. Somebody sure had something, even way back in those days. And if they had anything at all back there, they must know a lot by now. That's why I want to look them up. But suppose they want to kill us off at sight, objected Dorothy. They might be able to, mightn't they? Sure, but they probably wouldn't want to, any more than you would step on an ant who asked you to help him move a twig. That's about how much ahead of us they probably are. Of course, we struck a pure mentality once, who came darn near dematerializing us entirely. But I'm betting that these folks haven't got that far along yet. By the way, I've got a hunch about those pure intellectuals.
Oh, tell us about it, laughed Margaret. Your hunches are the world's greatest brainstorms. Well, I pumped out and rejeweled the compass we put on that funny planet as a last resort. I thought we might maybe visit them and ask that bozo we had the argument with to help us out. I think he, or it, would show us everything about the zone of force we want to know. I don't think that we'd be dematerialized, either, because the situation would give him something more to think about for another thousand cycles, and thinking seemed to be his main object in life. However, to get back to the subject, I found that even with the new power of the compass, the entire planet was still out of reach. Unless they've dematerialized it, that means about ten billion light-years as an absolute minimum. Think about that for a minute. I've just got a kind of hunch that maybe they don't belong in this galaxy at all. That they might be from some other galaxy, planet and all, just riding around on it as we are riding in the Skylark. Is the idea conceivable to a sane mind or not? Not, decided Dorothy promptly. We'd better go to bed. One more such idea, in progression with the last two you've had, would certainly give you a compound fracture of the skull. Night Cranes End of Chapter 6 Duquesne's Voyage Far from our solar system, a cigar-shaped space car slackened its terrific acceleration to a point at which human beings could walk and two men got up, exercised vigorously to restore the circulation to their numbed bodies, and went into the galley to prepare their meal, the first since leaving the earth some eight hours or more before. Because of the long and arduous journey he had decided upon, Duquesne had had to abandon his custom of working alone, and had studied all the available men with great care before selecting his companion and relief pilot. He had finally chosen Baby Doll Loring, so-called because of his curly yellow hair, his pink and white complexion, his guileless blue eyes, his slight form of rather less than medium height. But never did outward attributes more belie the inner man. The yellow curls covered a brain, agile, keen, and hard. The girlish complexion neither paled nor reddened under stress. The wide blue eyes had glanced along the barrels of so many lethal weapons that in various localities the noose yawned for him. The slender body was built of rawhide and whalebone, and responded instantly to the dictates of that ruthless brain. Under the protection of steel he flourished, and in return for that protection he performed quietly, and with neatness and dispatch, such odd jobs as were in his line, with which he was commissioned. When they were seated at an excellent breakfast of ham and eggs, buttered toast, and strong aromatic coffee, Duquesne broke the long silence. Do you want to know where we are? I'd say we were a long way from home, by the way this elevator of yours has been climbing all night. We are a good many million miles from Earth, and we are getting farther away at the rate that would have to be measured in millions of miles per second. Duquesne, watching the other narrowly, 
as he made this startling announcement, and remembering the effect of a similar one upon Perkins, saw with approval that the coffee cup in midair did not pause or waver in its course. Loring noted the bouquet of his beverage and took an appreciative sip before he replied. "'You certainly can make coffee, doctor, and good coffee is nine-tenths of a good breakfast. As to where we are, that's all right with me. I can stand it if you can.' "'Don't you want to know where we're going and why?' "'I've been thinking about that. Before we started, I didn't want to know anything, because what a man doesn't know he can't be accused of spilling in case of a leak. Now that we are on our way, though, maybe I should know enough about things to act intelligently, if something unforeseen should develop. If you'd rather keep it dark and give me orders when necessary, that's all right with me, too. It's your party, you know. I brought you along because one man can't stay on duty twenty-four hours a day continuously. Since you are in as deep as you can get, and since this trip is dangerous, you should know everything there is to know. You are one of the higher-ups now, anyway, and we understand each other thoroughly, I believe. I believe so. Back in the bow control room, Duquesne applied more power, but not enough to render movement impossible. You don't have to drive her as hard all the way, then, as you did last night? No, I'm out of range of Seton's instrument now, and we don't have to kill ourselves. High acceleration is punishment for anyone, and we must keep ourselves fit. To begin with, I suppose that you are curious about that object compass. That and other things. An object compass is a needle of specially treated copper, so activated that it points always toward one certain object, after being once set upon it. Seton undoubtedly has one upon me, but sensitive as they are, they can't hold on a mass as small as a man at this distance. That's why we left at midnight, after he had gone to bed, so that we'd be out of range before he woke up. I wanted to lose him, as he might interfere if he knew where I was going. Now I'll go back to the beginning and tell you the whole story. Tersely, but vividly, he recounted the tale of the interstellar cruise, the voyage of the Skylark of Space. When he had finished, Loring smoked for a few minutes in silence. "'There's a lot of stuff there that's hard to understand all at once. Do you mind if I ask a few foolish questions to get things straightened out in my mind?' "'Go ahead. Ask as many as you want to. It's hard to understand a lot of that osnomian stuff. A man can't get it all at once.' Osnome is so far away. How are you going to find it? With one object compass I mentioned, I had planned on navigating from notes I took on the trip back to Earth, but it wasn't necessary. They tried to keep me from finding out anything, but I learned all about the compasses, built a few of them in their own shop, and set one on Osnome. I had it, among other things, in my pocket when I landed. In fact, the control of that explosive copper bullet is the only thing they had that I wasn't able to get, and I'll get that on this trip. What is that Arnak armor they're wearing? Arnak is a synthetic metal, almost perfectly transparent. It has practically the same refractive index as air, 
Therefore, it is, to all intents and purposes, invisible. It's about 500 times as strong as chrome vandium steel, and even when you got it to the yield point, it doesn't break, but stretches out and snaps back like rubber, with the strength unimpaired. It's the most wonderful thing I saw on the whole trip. They make complete suits of it. Of course, they aren't very comfortable, but since they are only a tenth of an inch, they can be worn. A tenth of an inch of that stuff will stop a steel-nosed machine-gun bullet? Stop it? A tenth of an inch of arnak is harder to pierce than fifty inches of our hardest, toughest armor steel. A sixteen-inch armor-piercing projectile couldn't get through it. It's hard to believe, but nevertheless, it's a fact. The only way to kill Seton with a gun would be to use one heavy enough so that the shock of the impact would kill him, and it wouldn't surprise me a bit if he had his armor anchored with an attractor against that very contingency. Even if he hasn't, you can imagine the chance of getting action against him with a gun of that size? Yes, I've heard that he is fast. That doesn't tell half of it. You know that I'm handy with a gun myself. You're faster than I am, and that's saying something. You're chain lightning. Well, Seton is at least that much faster than I am. You've never seen him work. I have. On that Osnomian dock, he shot twice before I started, and shot twice to my once from then on. I must have been shooting a quarter of a second after he had his side all cleared up. To make it worse, I missed once with my left hand. He didn't. There's absolutely no use tackling Richard Seaton without an Osnomian ray generator, or something better. But as you know, Brookings always has been and always will be a fool. He wouldn't believe anything new, until after he has actually been shown. Well, I imagine he will be shown plenty by this evening. Well, I'll never tackle him with heat. How does he get that way? He's naturally fast, and has practiced sly of hand ever since he was a kid. He was one of the best amateur magicians in the country. And I will say that his ability along that line has come in handy for him more than once. I see where you're right in wanting to get something, since we have only ordinary weapons, and they have all that stuff. This trip is to get a little something for ourselves, I take it. Exactly. And you know enough now to understand what we are out here to get for ourselves. You have guessed that we are headed for Osnome. I suspected it. However, if you were going only to Osnome, you would have gone alone, so I also suspect that that's only half of it. I have no idea what it is, but you've got something else on your mind. You're right. I knew you were keen. When I was on Osnome, I found out something that only four other men, all dead, ever knew. There is a race of men far ahead of the Osnomians in science, particularly in warfare. They live a long way beyond Osnome. It is my plan to steal an Osnomian airship and mount all its ray screens, generators, guns, and everything else upon this ship, or else convert their vessel into a spaceship. Instead of using their ordinary power, however, we will do as Seton did 
and use intra-atomic power, which is practically infinite. Then we'll have everything Seaton's got. But that isn't enough. I want enough more than he's got to wipe him out. Therefore, after we get a ship armed to suit us, we'll visit this strange planet and either come to terms with them or else steal a ship from them. Then we'll have their stuff and that of the Osnomians, as well as our own. Seaton won't last long after that. Do you mind if I ask how you got that dope? Not at all, except when right with Seaton, I could do pretty much as I pleased, and I used to take long walks for exercise. The Osnomians tired very easily, being so weak, and because of the light gravity of the planet, I had to do a lot of work or walking to keep in any kind of condition at all. I learned Condolean quickly and got so friendly with the guards that pretty soon they quit trying to keep me in sight, but waited at the edge of the palace grounds until I came back and joined them. Well, on one trip, I was fifteen miles or so from the city when an airship crashed down in a woods about a half a mile from me. It was in an uninhabited district, and nobody else saw it. I went over to investigate, thinking probably I could find out something useful. It had the whole front end cut or broken off, and that made me curious, because no imaginable fall will break an arnak hull. I walked in through the hole and saw that it was one of their fighting tenders, a combination warship and repair shop, with all the stuff in it that I've been telling you about. The generators were mostly burned out, and the propelling and lifting motors were out of commission. I prowled around, getting acquainted with it, and found a lot of useful instruments, and, best of all, one of Dunark's new mechanical educators, with complete instructions for its use. Also, I found three bodies, and thought I'd try it out. Just a minute. Only three bodies on a warship? And what good could a mechanical educator do you if the men were all dead? Three is all I found then, but there was another one. Three men and a captain compose an Osnomian crew for any ordinary vessel. Everything is automatic, you know. As for the men being dead, that doesn't make any difference. You can read their brains just the same, if they haven't been dead too long. However, when I tried to read theirs, I found only blanks. Their brains had been destroyed, so that nobody could read them. That did look funny, so I ransacked the ship from truck to keelson, and found another body, wearing an air helmet, in a sort of closet off the control room. I put the educator on it. This is getting good. It sounds like a page out of the old Arabian Nights that I used to read when I was a boy. You know, it really isn't surprising that Brookings didn't believe a lot of this stuff. As I have said, a lot of it is hard to understand, but I'm going to show it to you, all that and more. Oh, I believe it all right. After riding in this boat and looking out of the windows, I'll believe anything. Reading a dead man's brain is steep, though. I'll let you do it after we get there. I don't understand exactly how it works myself, but I know how to operate one. Well, I found out that this man's brain was in good shape, 
and I got a shock when I read it. Here's what he had been through. They had been flying very high on their way to the front when their ship was seized by an invisible force and thrown upward. He must have thought faster than the others, because he put on an air helmet and dived into this locker, where he hid under a pile of gear, fixing things so that he could see out through the transparent arnak of the wall. No sooner was he hidden than the front end of the ship went up in a blaze of light, in spite of their ray screens going full blast. They were up so high by that time that when the bow was burned off, the other three fainted from lack of air. Then their generators went out, and pretty soon two peculiar-looking strangers entered. They were wearing vacuum suits, and were very short and stocky, giving the impression of enormous strength. They brought an educator of their own with them, and read the brains of the three men. Then they dropped the ship a few thousand feet, and revived the three with a drink of something out of a flask. Must have been different from the kind handled by most booties I know then. The stuff we've been getting lately would make a man more unconscious than ever. Some powerful drug, probably, but the Osnomian didn't know anything about it. After the men were revived, the strangers, apparently from sheer cruelty and love of torturing their victims, informed them in the Osnomian language that they were from another world on the far edge of the galaxy. They even told them, knowing that the Osnomians knew nothing of astronomy, exactly where they were from. Then they went on to say that they wanted the entire green system for themselves, and that in something like two years of our time they were going to wipe out all the present inhabitants of the system and take it over as a base for further operations. After that, they amused themselves by describing exactly the kinds of death and destruction they were going to use. They described most of it in great detail. It's too involved to tell you about now, but they've got rays, generators, and screens that even the Osnomians never heard of. And, of course, they've got intra-atomic energy, the same as we have. After telling them all this and watching them suffer, they put a machine on their heads, and they dropped dead. That's probably what disintegrated their brains. Then they looked the ship over rather casually, as though they didn't see anything they were interested in, crippled the motors, and went away. The vessel was then released and crashed. This man, of course, was killed by the fall. I buried the men. I didn't want anyone else reading that brain, hid some of the stuff I wanted most, and camouflaged the ship so that I'm fairly sure that it's there yet. I decided then to make this trip. I see. Loring's mind was grappling with these new strange facts. That news is staggering, Doctor. Think of it. Everybody thinks our own world is everything there is. Our world is simply a grain of dust in the universe. Most people know it academically, but very few ever give the fact any actual consideration. But now that you've had a little time to get used to the idea of there being other worlds, and some of them as far ahead of us in science as we are ahead of the monkeys, what do you think of it? I agree with you. We've got their stuff, said Loring. However, it occurs to me as a possibility that they may have so much stuff that we won't be able to make the approach. 
However, if the Osnomian fittings we're going to get are as good as you say they are, I think that two such men as you and I can get at least a lunch, while any other crew, no matter who they are, are getting a square meal. I like your style, Loring. You and I will have the world eating out of our hands shortly after we get back. As far as actual procedure over there is concerned, of course, I haven't made any definite plans. We'll have to size up the situation after we get there, before we can know exactly what we'll have to do. However, we are not coming back empty-handed. You said something, Chief, and the two men, so startling unlike physically, but so alike inwardly, shook hands in token of their mutual dedication to a single purpose. Loring was then instructed in the simple navigation of the ship of space, and thereafter the two men took their regular shifts at the controls. In due time they approached Osnone, and Duquesne studied the planet carefully through a telescope before he ventured down into the atmosphere. This half of it used to be Martindale. I suppose it's all Condal now. No, there's a war on down there yet. At least, there's a disturbance of some kind. On this planet, that means war. What are you looking for exactly? asked Loring, who was also examining the terrain with a telescope. They've got some spherical spaceships like Seton's. I know they had one, and they've probably built more of them since that time. Their airships can't touch us, but those ball-shaped cruisers would be pure poison to us, the way we are fixed now. Can you see any of them? Not yet. Too far away to make out details. They're certainly having a hot time down there, though, in that one spot. They dropped lower, toward the stronghold, which was being so stubbornly defended by the inhabitants of the third planet of the fourteenth sun, and so savagely attacked by the Condalean forces. There, we can see what they're doing now, and Duquesne anchored the vessel with an attractor. I want to see if they've got many of those spaceships in action, and you will want to see what war is like when it is fought by people who have been making war steadily for ten thousand years. Poised at the limit of clear visibility, the two men studied the incessant battle being waged beneath them. They saw not one, but fully a thousand of the globular craft high in the air and grouped in a great circle around an immense fortification upon the ground below. They saw no airships in the line of battle, but noticed that many such vessels were flying to and from the front, apparently carrying supplies. The fortress was an immense dome of some glassy transparent material, partially covered with slag, through which they saw that the central space was occupied by orderly groups of barracks, and that round the circumference were arranged gigantic generators, projectors, and other machinery at whose purpose they could not even guess. From the base of the dome, a twenty-mile-wide apron of the same glassy substance spread over the ground and above this apron and around the dome were thrown the mighty defensive ray screens, visible now and then in scintillating violet splendor, as one of the copper-driven Condalian projectors sought in vain an opening. But the Earthmen saw with surprise that the main attack 
was not being directed at the dome, that only an occasional ray was thrown against it in order to make the defenders keep their screens up continuously. The edge of the apron was bearing the brunt of that vicious and never-ceasing attack, and most concerned the desperate defense. For miles beyond that edge, and as deep under it, as frightful rays and enormous charges of explosive copper could penetrate, the ground was one seething, flaming volcano of molten and incandescent lava, lava constantly being volatized by the unimaginable heat of those rays and being hurled for miles in all directions by the inconceivable power of those explosive copper projectiles, the heaviest projectiles that could be used without endangering the planet itself being directed under the exposed edge of that unbreakable apron, which was in actuality anchored to the solid core of the planet itself, lava flowing into and filling up the vast craters caused by the explosions. The attack seemed fiercest at certain points, perhaps a quarter mile apart around the circle, and after a time the watchers perceived that at those points, under the edge of the apron, in that indescribable infernal of boiling lava, destructive rays and disintegrating copper, there were enemy machines at work. These machines were strengthening the protecting apron and extending it very slowly, but ever wider and ever deeper, as the ground under it and before it was volatized or hurled away by the awful forces of the Condolean attack. So much destruction had already been wrought that the edge of the apron and its molten moat were already fully a mile below the normal level of that cratered, torn, and tortured plain. Now and then, one of the mechanical moles would cease its labors, overcome by the concentrated fury of destruction centered upon it. Its shattered remnants would be withdrawn and shortly repaired or replaced. It would be back at work. But it was not the defenders who had suffered most heavily. The fortress was literally ringed about with the shattered remnants of airships and the riddled hulls of more than a few of those mighty globular cruisers of the void bore mute testimony to the deadliness and efficiency of the warfare of the invaders. Even as they watched, one of the spheres, unable for some reason to maintain its screens or overcome by the awful forces playing upon it, flared from white into and through the violet and was hurled upward as though shot from the mouth of some Brogdonanian howitzer. A door opened, and from its flaming interior four figures leaped out into the air, followed by a puff of orange-colored smoke. At the first sign of trouble, the ship, next it, in line, leaped in front of it, and the four figures floated gently to the ground, supported by friendly attractors and protected from enemy rays by the bulk and by the screens of the rescuing vessel. Two great airships soared upward from back of the lines and hauled the disabled vessel to the ground by means of their powerful attractors. The two observers saw with amazement that after brief attention from an ant-like ground crew, the original four men climbed back into their warship and she again shot into the fray, apparently as good as ever. "'What do you know about that?' exclaimed Duquesne. That gives me an idea, Loring. 
They must get to them that way fairly often, to judge by the teamwork they use when it does happen. How about waiting until they disable another one like that, and then grabbing it while it's in the air, deserted, and unable to fight back? One of those ships is worth a thousand of this one, even if we had everything known to the Osnomians. That's a real idea. Those boats certainly are brutes for punishment, agreed Loring, and as both men again settled down to watch the battle, he went on. So this is war out this way. You're right, Seaton. With half this stuff, we could whip the combined armies and navies of the world. I don't blame Brookings much, though, at that. Nobody could believe half of this unless they could actually see it, as we are doing. I can't understand it, Duquesne frowned, as he considered the situation. The attackers are Condoleans, all right. Those ships are developments of the Skylark. But I don't get that fort at all. Wonder if it can be the strangers are ready. Don't think so. They aren't due for a couple of years yet. And I don't think the Condoleans could stand against them a minute. It must be what is left of Martindale, although I never heard of anything like that. Probably it is some new invention they dug up at the last minute. That's it, I guess. And his brow cleared. It couldn't be anything else. They waited long for the incident to be repeated, and finally their patience was rewarded. When the next vessel was disabled and hurled upward by the concentration of enemy forces, Duquesne darted down, seized it with his most powerful attractor, and whisked it away into space at such a velocity that to the eyes of the Condoleans it simply disappeared. He took the disabled warship far out into space and allowed it to cool off for a long time before deciding that it was safe to board it. Through the transparent walls they could see no sign of life, and Duquesne donned a vacuum suit and stepped into the airlock. As Loring held the steel vessel close to the stranger, Duquesne leaped lightly through the open door into the interior. Shutting the door, he opened an auxiliary air tank, adjusting the gauge to one atmosphere as he did so. The pressure normal, he divested himself of the suit and made a thorough examination of the vessel. He then signaled Loring to follow him, and soon both ships were over Condal, so high as to be invisible from the ground. Plunging the vessels like a bullet towards the grove in which he had left the Condolian airship, he slowed abruptly, just in time to make a safe landing. As he stepped out upon Osnomian soil, Loring landed the earthly ship hardly less skillfully. This saves us a lot of trouble, Loring. This is undoubtedly one of the finest spaceships of the universe, and just about ready for anything. How did they get to it? One of the screen generators apparently weakened a trifle, probably from weeks of continuous use. That let some of the rays come through. Everything got hot, and the crew had to jump or roast. Nothing is hurt, though, as the ship was thrown up and out of range before the arnak melted at all. The copper repellers are gone, of course, and most of the bars that were in use are melted down, but there was enough of the main bar left to drive the ship, 
and we can replace the melted stuff easily enough. Nothing else was hurt, and there's absolutely nothing in the structure of these vessels that can be burned. Even the insulation in the coils and generators has a melting point higher than that of porcelain. And not all the copper was melted, either. Some of these storerooms are lined with two feet of insulation and are piled full of bars and explosive ammunition. What was the smoke we saw then? That was their food supply. It cooked to an ash, and their water was all boiled away through the safety valves. Those rays certainly can put out a lot of heat in a second or two. Can the two of us put on those copper repeller bands? The ship must be seventy-five feet in diameter. Yes, it's a lot bigger than the Skylark was. It's one of their latest models, or it wouldn't have been on the front line. As to banding on the repellers, that's easy. That airship is half full of metal-working machinery that can do everything but talk. I know how to use most of it from seeing it in use, and we can figure out the rest. In that unfrequented spot, there was little danger of detection from the air, and none whatsoever of detection from the ground. Of ground travel upon Ostome, there is none. Nevertheless, the two men camouflaged the vessels so that they were visible only to keen and direct scrutiny, and drove their task through to completion on the shortest possible time. The copper repellers were banded on, and much additional machinery was installed in the already well-equipped shop. This done, they transferred to their warship food, water, bedding, instruments, and everything else they needed or wanted from their own ship and from the disabled Condolean airship. They made a last tour of inspection to be sure they had overlooked nothing useful, then embarked. Think anybody will find those ships? They could get a good line on what we've done. Probably, eventually, Loring, so we'd better destroy them. We'd better take a short hop first, though, to test everything out. Since you're not familiar with the controls of a ship of this type, you need practice. Shoot us up around that moon over there and bring us back to this spot. She's a sweet handling boat, easy like a bicycle, declared Loring, as he brought the vessel lightly to a landing upon their return. We can burn the old one up now. We'll never need her again, any more than a snake needs his last year's skin. She's good, all right. Those two hulks must be put out of existence, but we shouldn't do it here. The rays would set the woods afire, and the metal would condense all around. We don't want to leave any tracks, so we'd better pull them out into space to destroy them. We could turn them loose, and as you've never worked a ray, it'll be good practice for you. Also, I want you to see for yourself just what our best armor plate amounts to compared with Arnak. When they towed the two vessels far out into space, Loring put into practice the instruction he had received from Duquesne concerning the complex armament of their vessel. He swung the beam projector upon the Condolean airship, pressed the connectors of the softener ray, the heat ray, and the induction ray, and threw the master switch. Almost instantly, the entire hull became blinding white, but it was several seconds before the extreme refractory material began to volatize. Though the metal was less than an inch thick, 
It retained its shape and strength stubbornly, and only slowly did it disappear in flaming, flaring gusts of incandescent gas. There you've seen what an inch of arnak is like, said Duquesne, when the destruction was complete. Now, shine it on that sixty-inch chrome vandium armor hull of our old bus and see what happens. Loring did so. As the beam touched it, the steel disappeared in one flare of radiance as he swung the projector in one flashing arc from the stem to the stern there was nothing left loring swinging the beam whistled in amazement wow what a difference and this ship of ours has a skin of arnak six feet thick yes now you understand why i didn't want to argue with anyone out here as long as we were in our steel ship I understand all right, but I can't understand the power of these rays. Suppose I had had all twenty of them on instead of only three. In that case, I think that we could have whipped even the short, thick strangers. You and me both. But say, every ship's got to have a name. This new one of ours is such a sweet, harmless, inoffensive little thing. We'd better name her the Violet, hadn't we? Duquesne started the violet off in the direction of the solar system occupied by the warlike strangers, but he did not hurry. He and Loring practiced incessantly for days at the controls, darting here and there, putting on terrific acceleration until the indicators showed a velocity of hundreds of thousands of miles per second, then reversing the acceleration until the velocity was zero. They studied the controls and alarm system until each knew perfectly every instrument, every tiny light, and the tone of each bell. They practiced with the rays, singly and in combination, with the visiplates and with the many levers and dials, until each one was so familiar with the complex installation that his handling of every control had become automatic. Not until then did Duquesne give the word to start out in earnest toward their goal, at an unthinkable distance. They had not been underway long when an alarm bell sounded its warning, and a brilliant green light began flashing upon the board. Hmm, Duquesne frowned as he reversed the bar. Outside intra-atomic energy detector. Somebody's using power out here. Direction, about dead ahead, straight down. Let's see if we can see anything. He swung number six, the telescopic visiplate, into connection. After what seemed to them a long time, they saw a sudden sharp flash, apparently an immense distance ahead, and simultaneously three more alarm bells rang and three colored lights flashed briefly. Somebody got quite a jolt then. Three rays in action at once for three or four seconds, reported Duquesne, as he applied still more negative acceleration. I'd like to know what this is all about, he exclaimed after a time, as they saw a subdued glow, which lasted a minute or two. As the warning light was flashing more and more slowly, and with diminishing intensity, the violet was once more put upon her course. As she proceeded, however, the warnings of the liberation of intraatomic energy grew stronger and stronger, and both men scanned their path intensely for a sight of the source of the disturbance, while their velocity 
was cut to only a few hundred miles an hour. Suddenly the indicator swerved and pointed behind them, showing that they had passed the object, whatever it was. Duquesne instantly applied power and snapped on a small searchlight. If it's so small that we couldn't see it when we passed it, it's nothing to be afraid of. We'll be able to find it with a light. After some search, they saw an object floating in space, apparently a vacuum suit. Shall one of us get in the airlock, or shall we bring it in with an attractor? asked Loring. An attractor by all means, two or three of them, in fact, to spread eagle whatever it is. Never take any chances. It's probably an osnomian, but you never can tell. It may be one of those other people. We know they were around here a few weeks ago, and they're the only ones I know of that have infra-atomic power besides us and the osnomians. That's no osnomian, he continued, as the stranger was drawn into the airlock. He's big enough around for four osnomians and very short. We'll take no chances at all with that fellow. The captive was brought into the control room, pinioned, head, hand, and foot, with attractors and repellers, before Duquesne approached him. He then read the temperature and pressure of the stranger's air supply, and allowed the surplus air to escape slowly, before removing the stranger's suit, and revealing one of the fenachrone, eyes closed, unconscious, or dead. Duquesne leaped for the educator, and handed Loring a headset. Put this on quick. He may be only unconscious, and we might not be able to get a thing from him if he were awake. Loring donned the headset, still staring at the monstrous form with amazement not unmixed with awe, while Duquesne, paying no attention to anything except the knowledge he was seeking, manipulated the controls of the instrument. His first quest was for the weapons and armament of the vessel. In this he was disappointed, as he learned that the stranger was one of the navigating engineers, and as such had no detailed knowledge of the matters of prime importance to the Inquisitor. He did have a complete knowledge of the marvelous fenachrone propulsion system, however, and this Duquesne carefully transferred to his own brain. He then rapidly explored other regions of that fearsome organ of thought. As the gigantic and inhumane brain was spread out before them, Duquesne and Loring read not only the language, custom, and culture of the Fenachrone, but all their plans for the future, as well as the events of the past. Plainly in his mind, they perceived how he had been cast adrift in the emptiness of the void. They saw the Fenachrone cruiser lying in wait for the two globular vessels. Looking through an extraordinary powerful telescope with the eyes of their prisoner, they saw them approach, all unsuspecting. Duquesne recognized all five persons in the Skylark, and Dunark, and Sitar in the Condal. Such was the unearthly optical instrument, and so clear was the impression upon the mind before him. They saw the attack and the battle. They saw the Skylark throw off her zone of force and attack, saw this one survivor standing directly in line with a huge projector spring and saw the spring severed by the zone. The free end, under its thousands of pounds of tension, had struck the beam upon the side of the head, and the force of the blow, only partially blocked by the heavy helmet, 
had hurled him out through the yawing gap in the wall and hundreds of miles out into space. Suddenly the clear view of the brain of the fenachrome became blurred and meaningless, and the flow of knowledge ceased. The prisoner had regained consciousness and was trying with all his gigantic strength to break from those intangible bonds that held him. So powerful were the forces upon him, however, that only a few twitching muscles gave evidence that he was struggling at all. Glancing about him, he recognized the attractors and repellers bearing upon him, ceased his efforts to escape, and hurled the full power of his baleful glaze into the black eyes so close to his own. But Duquesne's mind, always under perfect control, and now amply reinforced by a considerable proportion of the stranger's own knowledge and power, did not waver under the force of even that hypnotic glare. It is useless, as you observe, he said coldly, in the stranger's own tongue, and sneered. You are perfectly helpless. Unlike you of the Fenachrone, however, men of my race do not always kill strangers at sight, merely because they are strangers. I will spare your life if you can give me anything of enough value to me to make extra time and trouble worthwhile. You read my mind, while I could not resist your childish efforts. I will have no traffic whatever with you, who have destroyed my vessel. If you have mentality enough to understand any portion of my mind, which I doubt, you already know the fate in store for you. Do with me what you will. This from the stranger. Duquesne pondered long before he replied, considering whether it was to his advantage to inform this stranger of the facts. Finally he decided. Sir, neither I nor this vessel had anything to do with the destruction of your warship. Our detectors discovered you floating in empty space. We stopped and rescued you from death. We have seen nothing else save what we saw pictured in your own brain. I know that, in common with all of your race, you possess neither conscience nor honor, as we understand the terms. An automatic liar by instinct and training, whenever you think lies will best serve your purpose. You may yet have intelligence enough to recognize simple truth when you hear it. You already have observed that we are of the same race as those who destroyed your vessel, and have assumed that we are with them. In that you are wrong. It is true that I am acquainted with those others, but they are my enemies. I am here to kill them, not to aid them. You have already helped me in one way. I know as much as does my enemy concerning the impenetrable shield of force. If I will return you unharmed to your own planet, will you assist me in stealing one of your ships of space, so that I may destroy the Earth vessel? The Fenachrome, paying no attention to Duquesne's barbed comments concerning his honor and veracity, did not hesitate an instant in his reply. I will not. We supermen of the Fenachrome will allow no vessel of ours, with its secrets, unknown to any others of the universe, to fall into the hands of any of the lesser breeds of men. Well, you didn't try to lie that time anyway, said Duquesne. But think a minute. Satan, my enemy, already has one of your vessels. Don't think he is too much of a fool to put it back together, and to learn its every secret. Then, too, remember that I have your mind, 
and can get along without you, even though I am willing to admit that you could be of enough help to me so that I would save your life in exchange for that help. And remember that, Superman, you may be, your mentality cannot cope with the forces I have bearing upon you. Neither will you, being a Superman, enable your body to retain life after I have pushed you through yonder door, dressed as you are, in a silken tunic. I have the normal love of life, was the reply, but some things cannot be done, even with life at stake. Stealing a vessel of fenachrone is one of those things. I can, however, do this much. If you will return me to my own planet, you too shall be received as guests aboard one of our vessels, and shall be allowed to witness the vengeance of the fenachrone upon your enemy. Then you shall be returned to your vessel, and allowed to depart unharmed. Now you are lying by rote. I know just what you'd do, said Duquesne. Get that idea out of your head right now. The attractors now holding you will not be released until after you have told all. Then, and only then, will we try to discover a way of returning you to your own world safely, and yet in a manner which will in no way jeopardize my own safety. Incidentally, I warn you that the first sign of an attempt to play false with me in any way will mean your instant death. The prisoner remained silent, analyzing every feature of the situation, and Duquesne continued coldly. Here's something else for you to think about. If you are unwilling to help us, what is to prevent me from killing you, and then hunting up Seton and making peace with him for the duration of this forthcoming war? With the fragments of your vessel, which he has, with my knowledge of your mind, reinforced by your own dead brain, and with the vast resources of all the planets of the green system, there is no doubt that the plans of the Fenachrone will be seriously interfered with. Myriads of your race will certainly lose their lives, and it is quite possible that your entire race would be destroyed. Understand that I care nothing for the green system. You are welcome to it, if you do as I ask. If you do not, I shall warn them and help them simply to protect my world, which is now my own personal property. In return for our armament and equipment, you promise not to warn the green system against us? The death of your enemy takes first place in your mind. The stranger spoke thoughtfully. In that, I understand your viewpoint thoroughly. But after I have remodeled your power plant into ours and have piloted you to our planet, what assurance have I that you will liberate me, as you have said? None whatever. I have made and am asking no promises, since I cannot expect you to trust me any more than I can trust you. Enough of this argument. I am master here, and I am dictating terms. We can get along without you. Therefore, you must decide quickly whether you would rather die suddenly and surely, here in space and right now, or help us as I demand, and live until you get back home, enjoying meanwhile your life and whatever chance you think you may have of being liberated within the atmosphere of your own planet. Just a minute, Chief, Loring said in English, is back to the prisoner. Won't we gain more by killing him and going back to Seton and the green system, as you suggested? No, Duquesne also turned away to shield his features from the mind-reading gaze of the fenachrone. 
That was pure bluff. I don't want to get within a million miles of Seton until after we have the armament of this fellow's ships. I couldn't make peace with Seton now, even if I wanted to, and I haven't the slightest intention of trying. I intend killing him on sight. Here's what we're going to do. First, we'll get what we came after. Then we'll find the Skylark and blow her clear out of space and take over the pieces of the Fenachrone ship. After that, we'll head for the green system, and with their own stuff and what we'll give them, they'll be able to give those fiends a hot reception. By the time they finally destroy the Osnomians, if they do, we'll have the world ready for them. He turned to the Fenachrone. What is your decision? I submit, in hope that you will keep your promise, since there is no alternative but death. And the awful creature, still loosely held by the attractors, and carefully watched by Duquesne and Loring, fairly tore into the task of rebuilding the Osnomian power plant into the space-annihilating drive of the Fenachrone, for he well knew, one fact, that Duquesne's hurried inspection had failed to glean from the labyrinthine intricacies of that fearsome brain, that once within the detector screens of that distant solar system, these Earth beings would be utterly helpless before the forces which would inevitably be turned upon them. Also, he realized that time was precious and resolved to drive the Violet so unmercifully that she would overtake that fleeing torpedo not many hours upon its way, the torpedo bearing news for the first time in Fenachrone history of the overwhelming defeat and capture of one of its mighty engines of interstellar war. In a very short time, considering the complexity of the undertaking, the conversion of the power plant was done and the repellers, already supposed the ultimate in protection, were reinforced by a 10,000-pound mass of activated copper, effective for untold millions of miles. Their monstrous pilot then set the bar and advanced both levers of the dual power control out to the extreme limit of their travel. There was no sense of motion or of acceleration, since the new system of propulsion acted upon every molecule of matter within the radius of activity of the bar, which had been set to include the entire hull. The passengers felt only the utter lack of all weight and the other peculiar sensations with which they were already familiar, as each had had previous experience of free motion in space. But in spite of the lack of apparent motion, the Violet was now leaping through the unfathomable depths of interstellar space with the unthinkable speed of five times the velocity of light. End of chapter 7 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas